So we're going to jump into uh, week two of the second leg of our Genesis series, uh, which we are uh, calling Chaos and Man, or Disorder and Man, actually. Um, You guys know that in the first series, we looked at the fact that God was a God of order. And although God created the world uh, for order and in order, in in some sense, uh, man failed in his function to maintain, to keep, to subdue. Okay. And man failed in his function quite early on in the story, and is what we refer to as the fall. Okay. So God makes a command, and then we, um, we break that. Uh, yet this, uh, in this, we should consider, um, as, as we go through the fall of man and the disorder that we create, we should consider many interesting ideas regarding the garden's original state. So there's a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about today uh, that, that can get a little bit heady, can get a little bit philosophical, uh, but I'll do my best to just kind of um, just shoot straight with you, right, to, so that we don't get lost in the weeds of weird terms and, and things like that. Um, these ideas, I think, uh, help us to ask better questions when we're, when we're looking at the text of Scripture, I think it helps us to arrive at better answers. And I think it provides us with a bit of an insight or a bit of a, um, a jump start when it comes to what skeptics will question us with, what they hit us with. Uh, you guys do know that we live in an ever-growing skeptical world, right? You do know that, at least in America. I mean, we can go to other countries, that's fine. But the reality in America is that people are questioning. People are skeptical of things. Uh, I, would, I would balance that a bit by saying that people are quite skeptical of everything in today's culture. Uh, so so even, if, even if we run into people that aren't uh, necessarily antagonistic towards Christianity, they are going to be questioning things. And if we don't have answers, we're not really much help in this plan, right? Uh, The Great Commission is for us to go into all the world and and to uh, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all the commands of Christ and we have to get them to that place first by by reason, by talking to them, by by sharing with them the truth of God's word. And and this is how I believe, quite quite deeply I believe this, this is how God uh, woos people, how he leads people to him. Uh, John Walton said this, and again, this this can get a little bit big, but he says the cognitive environment in the ancient world, that's simply the way they thought, right? The cognitive environment in the ancient world was very different from ours. Therefore, we must be cautious about reflexively imposing our cultural assumptions on the text. In other words, we got to be careful not to read stuff into things. Uh, one of the big arguments that we talk about today is the argument between men and women and uh, the ideas of ma- uh, you know, toxic masculinity or, or hyperfeminism or these kinds of ideas. And um, we can find it really easy uh, to read these ideas into the text of Scripture and go, see, that's what God says. Well, guess what? God wasn't talking about feminism and God's word wasn't talking about toxic masculinity. It wasn't talking about any of the nonsense that we talk about today. It talks about the fact that there is a broken order and that there's a broken system and that God wants that dividing wall that separates men and women and Jew and Gentile and slave and free, he wants that to be broken down and that union to be restored. 
Okay, so he, he doesn't address that. So John Walton goes on and says, as a people who take the Bible seriously, we are obligated to read it for what the human communicator conveys to us about what God was revealing. So that's a really weird chain reaction there. God inspires his word, but how many of you know all of the Bible is written down by human authors? How many of you know this? Okay, very important. God didn't make somebody's hand move. God didn't put people into trances. God didn't do these things. God inspires people, and that is a complex idea for us to understand. So again, we are obligated as as people who take the Bible seriously to read it for what the human communicator conveys to us about what God was revealing. The human communicator, the author in every particular book, whatever it is, is going to do that in the context of his native cognitive environment. So the author is going to do it based on his worldview. He's going to do it based on what he is seeing. And so we, we, we know this like simply when we talk about the creation of the cosmos, that they were not, um, we would label them as a pre-scientific worldview. Right, And so they weren't talking about the material origins of the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And our question is, where did it come from? And they're going, stop, Yahweh created it. Okay, And that's the point. And we need to take that for what it's worth. But the second we start to read stuff in is the second we start to get way off track. And then we get into arguments about stuff that the Bible isn't actually trying to address. So let me give you another example, humanity's role within the cosmos. In ancient Near Eastern myths, uh, they offer a philosophy that says that humanity was created to carry out the work of the gods. Now this isn't too foreign, this sounds similar to what we are called to do. Uh, I love this phrase uh, that... um, that God has no hands except for our hands, God has no feet except for our feet, and God has no lips except for our lips. What does that mean? It simply means that we are the hands and feet of God and we are the ministers of the gospel. God could just do it from heaven, I'm sure, but he doesn't. And so this is the responsibility that we hold, okay? So let's keep going. The ancient Near Eastern myth offered this philosophy that says humanity has been created to carry out the will of the gods. What this means, though, is a work that is essential for the continuing existence of the gods. So look at this. In ancient worldviews, uh, the gods were contingent on man. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, man is contingent on God, right? So we, we rely on God. And so it was for the continued existence of God and it was for specific things that the God had, gods had grown tired of doing. Okay, so the gods were lazy <laughs> and they wanted people to do all of their bidding. This sounds like sometimes me as a dad. But anyway, so, right, so, so the idea is I want you to do all these things and so it puts, puts humanity in doing this. Either the work of the gods had been forced on humanity just as something to do, or it was given as a task to, and this is from one of the ancient Near East myths, to benefit the house of the great gods. And in one instance, it was said to have been given so that mankind could, quote, assume the drudgery of God. That sounds fun. How many of you, I mean, seriously, you've never, you may have never engaged with ancient Near Eastern myths, But based on the Christian worldview that you were given, based on the religious worldview worldview you were given, you kind of feel like 
you were put here to carry out the drudgery of God. How many of you feel that way? Yeah, sometimes we feel this way. This is a weird ancient idea. This is not how God initially creates everything, right? So we, uh, the ancient Near Eastern myths would assume uh, people were created to assume the drudgery of God. And again, so that mankind could bear the burden of the gods, that those gods may rest. So the ancient Near Eastern gods needed to kick back on their cosmic lazy boys while we did everything. Meanwhile, meanwhile in Israel, although definitely created to serve God as well, humanity is given a priestly role within the sacred space. And what is that sacred space? We've got the world, we've got a garden, or we've got Eden, and then we've got a garden in the east of Eden, which is this temple language, that we have this most holy place, and inside of this, man is created to tend and to keep. And then he has an outward focus, which is to subdue and multiply and all of these beautiful things. So the Israelite worldview was, was to uh, serve as a priestly role in a sacred space. This was not the labor of slaves. This was a, this was a high position, guys. We were, we were put in a, an amazing place. God also provided food for us. And this is important in the fall language. God provides food for us. And he provides it, by the way, in abundance. He's given us so much. There is no, like, it is amazing to think of how much he cared for us with how much he gave to us. In the ancient Near Eastern myths, though, man was to create this food or whatever. And it was actually offerings for the God. It was, it was to give to the God. So when we think about worldview uh, and we think about skeptics in, in and around our life, we have to remember that we are, we are uh, reading a text that is ensconced in a particular worldview. There is a way of looking at this, and there are questions that are going to arise, but there's questions that are going to arise that are based on our worldview and, and culture, and then there are questions that we need to get at that the original authors might have been thinking about. Therefore, the writer was answering the doubts of the world. One of those being, these people have come out of captivity and they feel like God has checked out on them, right? They've come out of captivity. They feel like, who is Yahweh? What is Yahweh? What's he going to do for us? And then Moses comes along and he drops this amazing creation story in which he says, not only is Yahweh not gone, not only, not only is Yahweh bigger than Pharaoh or whoever was holding them captive, not only is this true, but he is king over everything in the cosmos. Now, if you heard that in your turmoil and fear after captivity, you would, have, you would be injected with hope. But if you came out of captivity and you heard Moses say, here's the scientific textbook for how the planet got here, you'd go, Oh, crap. Here's science class again. I, don't, I didn't like it the first time. I definitely don't like it now, right? That's not what is happening. There is a worldview that's being presented. So with that in mind, we're going, to, we're going to look again at Genesis 3, and we're going to bridge into Genesis 4, and I'll do a little bit of dancing around in some New Testament passages. But we're going to look at these things again, and we're going to start to ask important questions of their worldview and what we can glean from the text. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Text will be on the screen. 
just like they were last week. But I encourage you to open your Bibles or get out a notepad so that you can write down thoughts that you might consider when it comes to this. So starting at verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Okay, so there's two elements here that are important to, to notice. Number one is this weird, crafty, talking serpent, right? And the second one is this question that the serpent asks. Now, uh, we should dive deeply in to the idea of what is this identity of the serpent? What's going on here? And I'm giving you a broad section of worldviews, a broad cross-section of worldviews, so that you can consider ideas that might be different than what you're used to. Uh, the identity of the serpent in Genesis 3.1 is a deeply debated idea. It is also uh, a relatively new, in world history, a relatively new idea that the serpent is the devil. It's a Judeo-Christian idea, but not held by, uh, not primarily held by Jewish scholars or Jewish thinkers. So it's been greatly debated. The traditional interpretation held by scholars such as, and I'm, I'm going Christian first, like John Calvin, for example. So keep this in mind. This is Reformation ideas, is that the serpent is either the devil or it is an animal used by the devil. How many of you would say, yeah, that's what I was taught, right? It's either the devil or it's an animal used by God. Okay. However, uh, Nahum Sarna and, uh, and others note that this interpretation is not the Old Testament, not in the Old Testament, and does not appear until the Jewish apocryphal book, The Wisdom of Solomon, which dates to the first century BC. So think about this for just a second. This notion didn't appear until 100 years before Christ. It's interesting, and it's something to consider. However, right, we've got other views that we have, to, we have to look at. The writings of the New Testament authors, including Paul, we see this in Romans 16.20, and John in Revelation 12.9, also reflect uh, this understanding of uh, some sort of serpent, dragon, deceiver, devil. Okay, that's, that's what they understand. So you can look those passages up, Romans 16, 20 and Revelation 12, 9, and you can see where the Judeo-Christian idea kind of forms, uh, or the Christian idea forms. Uh, also, reflecting this understanding, uh, we've got, we've got a, a scholar named Casuto who, and others who argue that such an interpretation, contrary to that, such an interpretation introduces concepts into the Genesis text that the ancient audience would not have recognized. So think about what I just started with. I said, we've got to get into their cognitive space, and we've got to ask the questions of what they were asking or see the things that they were seeing. What happens if the serpent isn't the devil? What happens? Does it change the story? It doesn't change the story, right? The story is still very uh, clear that man is deceived, and man falls away from God, and disorder ensues, 
okay? Um, now, there's a lot to this, and, and uh, you know, we can get into all kinds of debates and discussions on, on whether or not it is the devil or not. But it's a fun thing to recognize that these different worldviews exist. Since the figure of a serpent was well known in ancient mythology, listen to this, many scholars believe that the Bible reflects similar ideas. In ancient mythology, the serpent was associated with positive concepts. Are you ready for this? Positive concepts like health, fertility, wisdom, and immortality. Now, isn't it funny that the crafty or wise serpent is also wooing them to eat of the tree that would give them what they think would be wisdom, right? The knowledge of good and evil so that they could be like God. So that was a, a positive view of a serpent in the ancient Near East. Westerman notes a similar positive interpretation of the Genesis serpent in which it is a symbol of human curiosity. So now we're dealing with figurative language and it starts to really challenge our, our ways of thinking. However, the serpent was also associated with chaos and evil in the ancient Near East. Again, Nahum Sarna notes that uh, the Old Testament hints at comparable ideas in Israel, Israelite belief. Uh, if you look at Psalm 74.14 or Isaiah 27.1, you see the story of the Leviathan and the comparison of that with the devil, or the serpent, rather. Accordingly, Casuto argues that the Genesis serpent is an allegorical symbol for evil in the human heart. Now, we've got all these vast different views, right? We've got not the devil, we've got people wouldn't have seen it this way, period, doesn't matter what you think, right? Who knows, right? Um, we've got the, the reformed view of this, and then we have modern Christian scholars. So, for example, uh, Wenham and John Walton conclude that the text's clear identification of the serpent as one of the beasts that God made would have prevented the ancient Israelite from seeing a hidden identity for the serpent. So because, interpretation, because God made it expressly clear that he made the serpent, Walton would conclude, and so would Wenham, no one would have connected something deeper. Isn't that interesting? And yet, with our worldview, what we do is we are so entrenched in it. We're so deeply embedded in this worldview that we can only see things one way. So I, I give you all of that to say that we have to consider this as we're reading the text of Scripture. We have to consider what's going on because a lot of other things can unfold as a result of that, okay? One thing in that is that if the serpent isn't the devil, then I would argue we, we probably should think, did evil pre-exist in the world? My vote is still yes, because there's still a knowledge of a, uh, there's a, still a tree with the knowledge of good and evil, right? So it would seem that way. So it could be both. And if the serpent is the devil, it seems very clear that the fall of Satan has occurred and there's all kinds of problems, including our temptation. Nonetheless, let's just keep walking through this. The serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. Let's just read it that way, plain and simple. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent in verse 2, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Do you notice that this, the woman does not respond with, holy crap, a talking snake? 
just pointing it out there, she doesn't respond with that. There's something about this that seems normal to her. Not normal to me, right? But it seems normal. But I love this question that I, I love to analyze, the question that the serpent asks. Did God really say? Now, what does that sound like to you? Sounds a whole lot like what happens in, in uh, Jesus' wilderness experience in which three times we have an echo, which is where my worldview actually comes from with this serpent, but where the devil is tempting Jesus. And every time he loves to do this, did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say? What does that do if somebody asks you that question in that way? Like, Roger, if I say, did Beth really say that you could go golfing? Right? Right? Yes. Right, right. Okay, good, good, healthy relationship. Let's deal with the hard... No, anyway, okay. So, but if you phrase a question like that, does it not naturally go, well, hold on a second. Yes, he... No, he didn't say that, right? It gets you a little bit discombobulated, right? So, so he asked this question, and he's trying to get a, a trip up. But there's nothing inherently evil in his question. Indeed, has God said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? It's a curious question, but it's not like sowing sin or something like this, right? Maybe doubt because he's a deceiver. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. And we're getting to somewhere of what this disorder has created, okay? So just bear with me on this. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And I've given you my argument that I, I believe what is happening or I've given you a, an idea that what I believe is happening is in this cosmic temple language, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is real, but it's representing something, and it is in the place in the Holy of Holies that the Ark of the Covenant would be. Moses is the one writing this, and so there's an injection, it appears, to something there. Now, anybody who would challenge that and say, Nathan, you're, you, you're reading way too much into this, well, all scholars read into these things. The, the predominant view of scholars is to read into to it that Eve is making up another rule so that she, uh, she doesn't offend God. But the absurdity of that in my mind, I'd love to hear more, more details on this, the absurdity of that is why would she add rules already? There's never been any weird violations. She's not a Pharisee. There's not a problem. Why would she go, the, the first rule needs a second rule? Why would that happen? Instead, it seems very likely that the writer has influence in what's going on. Human authors, inspired by God, to communicate something. And then there's an ancient worldview. Somebody has to embrace this worldview. So nonetheless, she says, that's not actually true. Here's what God did say. God said, from the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat. God actually said, I've given you everything. Do you notice how big that language is? I gave you everything? Just don't eat from this? That's an amazing blessing. God's like, abundance, abundance, abundance. By the way, church, that is the God you serve. That is the God you serve. When you start to understand his grace, even post-fall, you will understand he's an absurdly gracious God. I mean, like from the get-go, he doesn't write off humanity in the way that some people seem to conclude. 
He's just, he's, he's a beautiful creator, okay? So from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. And then she gives this weird little disclaimer, which we can debate. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, right? So he's, he's challenging this idea of what she means by death. For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now I asked you last week, was he lying here? And the answer is no, he wasn't lying. Because when we go down, we see that it is true. It said, then the Lord God said, verse 22, you don't have to skip there, but the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. The devil wasn't lying that you would become like God. The devil was lying that, that you won't die as a result of God's command, right? And so you do know this. But here's the truth about you and I. We can't handle what God knows. We are lifelong learners and we need to be lifelong learners as God pours out his truth on us over time. This is a a very important lesson. So we go back and it says, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Okay, that's true, but the die part is not exactly true. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Is that weird to you? Has she never seen this tree before? Think about that. Think about her response to this or her, her, the insight to Eve. She saw that the tree was good for food. She could have seen that before. And that it was a delight to the eyes. She could have seen that before. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She could have seen this before. So she took from the fruit and ate. It doesn't seem she even understands what this tree is. Seems very new to her. Oh, well, it does look good, right? I don't know what that says about the timeline. I don't know what that says about what is happening. But the temptation is there. The idea of this serpent, this craftiness, is intending to get her to fall. And he uses something very powerful that is alluring to her. Okay? I believe that this reflects something powerful in the New Testament, which which indicates that um, we are... We are lured by the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, right? There's this trifecta of things that we are, we are lured in by. And I believe that echo is true of what's happening here with Eve, right? The fruit of the garden was, uh, was desirable for her, right? Let's go back to it. Sorry, guys. It was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. There's something about this that is making her long for this. Okay, so we need, to, we need to talk about the reason why death is brought up. You won't surely die and what the devil is, act, well, my view, the devil is actually doing. What other people's view, the serpent is crafty and doing. Do you know that we were not created eternal beings? I'm serious. Do you know that we were not created eternal beings? That's a not true, it's just not true. You weren't created eternal. You never were. I don't know where the idea came from. It's just simply not true. You want me to prove it for you? I can absolutely prove it for you. 
The first proof that you are not an eternal being, but that you were created with a capacity for eternity, is that there's a tree of life. What do you need it for if you're eternal? Why is it hidden from you? Why is it hidden from Adam and Eve? If you are eternal, it doesn't matter. And why is God's statement in his divine counsel, hide the tree or they'll live forever? Why is that there? What is the importance of you not being eternal? The importance is simply this. We've got to read our Bibles more faithfully. We've got to read our Bibles and not come up with weird ideas. Well, we're all eternal beings, so one day, no, we're not. And guess what this informs? It informs ideas and viewpoints about hell. I'm, I'm going to throw out something here that might really wreck your worldview. But if God is not a God who absolutely annihilates those people who do not accept his son Jesus, you have to put in your mind what it implies God will do. He raises you from the dead. He judges you as guilty. You are not eternal, so he feeds you of the tree of life and tortures you. Feeds you of the tree of life and tortures you. Feeds you of the tree of life and tortures you. Does that sound like God? That's really whacked out if it is. This is challenging because one view of our idea of we're created eternal creates trickle-down effects on our views of hell and our views of everything. So these are, these are really challenging ideas, but it takes us looking at the text and going, well, what's going on here? So first things first, you're not created eternal. You are created with a capacity for eternity, and that comes because of access to the tree of life, of which we don't have access until Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, okay? But with Jesus, all things are good. We are forever okay. So when the, women, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Where was Adam? Hanging out like a dunce, sitting there when he could have said something. So do you see why we blame Adam? Because he's to blame. Okay, so anyway, that's not exactly why we blame Adam. But anyway, so he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Did you notice that they were naked before, but they weren't ashamed? Nakedness does not equal shame. Somehow the knowledge of this turns to shame. Somehow the knowledge of this, and I would argue what you might do with it, lends to shame. And so automatically they go to making coverings. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. There's lots of ideas that could be construed about this. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and now we're to the point, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What is the effect of chaos of man with God? The effect is... A separation that is initiated by us. God comes straight to the garden. He's like, Bill, where you at? Bill's like, don't have any underwear on, right? Right? <laughs> Sorry for the picture. <laughs> okay. <Right. laughs> 
I love you. Anyway, so this is not what's going on, okay? So there's some sort of knowledge, right? There's some sort of shame that comes with this. But they have to make loin coverings. And the separation that is experienced from them to God is initiated by them. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You know, among all the blessings that were given to them. They hid themselves among all those blessings. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I've asked you this before, and we're going to parallel this with Cain and Abel in just a second. Where are you? You think God was confused? Nope. Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. What's the second effect of this division between man and God? Shame and fear, and a fear that doesn't make sense. He walked with God before and he was fine. Maybe he had a profound reverence. We don't have it in the text. But what we know here is that he hides and he's scared. The sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. Why are you afraid? And he said, who told you that you were naked? Another trivia question that God is not uh, clueless of, right? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So he knows. I told you guys last week, this is exactly what I do with my kids. I tell them to do something. I tell them not to do something. They do it. It's evident they did it. I'm like, what did you do? There's this YouTube video of this this little kid. And his dad goes, "Uh, son, did you eat the icing off the cupcakes? Have you seen this video? It's so unbelievably funny. Anyway, this little kid went by and licked all the icing off of this dozen of cupcakes, right, in this thing. He has icing all over his face, and he goes, nope. And he goes, are you sure you didn't eat all the icing off the cupcakes? And he goes, I didn't do it. And he goes, I'm going to give you one last chance. And he's like, no. Like, unbelievable this is the way we are right you know who told you you were naked um i don't know i don't know what happened right so we're asking the question because we know what's true god is and he's waiting for confession so the man said and i said this last week right the woman you gave me the woman said the devil made me do it and we talked about that if you want to go back onto that you can you can get that but she says the serpent deceived me and i ate god does not ask the serpent a question now Man, what'd you do? I I was naked. Did you eat? Well, the woman did it. Woman, what'd you do? The devil did it. He doesn't even acknowledge the serpent. He goes, cursed are you. He doesn't care what his excuse is. I don't know. There's something interesting there, right? Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. I asked last week, does that mean the cattle are presently cursed and now they're Not as cursed, I don't know. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And you shall bruise, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then there is this idea that that Christians have interpreted into that text, that that is referring to Jesus and the serpent, okay? And so we all know this in... uh, Mel Gibson did a masterful job of this in his passion. So the woman he, to the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Another point that I want to make about leadership inside of men and women, and that is that 
God has made a system of leadership. The fall broke that system of leadership. And the return is not a place of who gets to lead. That is a profoundly fall-esque question. Who gets to lead? Dang it, I want to be a leader. No. The point is, God has said, God is that of Christ, Christ is that of man. Man is the head of woman. But the same scripture that says that that kind of hierarchy exists also says that we don't lord it over each other in any way, shape, or form. There is no sense in which leadership should make the person feel like oppressed, uh, slavery, or like they're the hired help. Amen? This is very important. But the unity of Adam and Eve that gets recreated because of the gospel, because of what Jesus does, the unity is they're both a team and they need each other. So all the argument today about uh, how men need to re-engage and be more manly and, and women need to be more womanly, fine, but do it together. Men should be men and women should be women. But they ought to do these things together. That every time we create the tension and we create some sort of uh, pitting against one another, all we're doing is rebuilding the wall that Jesus tore down. So it's a problem. Then to Adam, God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, not because you listened to Eve, right? I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. I love this line. Read it clearly. For you are dust. It does not say for you came from dust. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Okay? This is pretty harsh stuff. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Lots of conjecture on that and we may get into that in uh, later weeks. Then the Lord God said, behold the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and, read it with me church, live forever. Not eternal. Not eternal. Never was. This is the capacity for eternity, the tree of life, and it is gone from you. And so life becomes something that Jesus gives to those who trust in him and accept the gospel. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Now this is really important. He drove him from the sanctuary. He drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and, I love this, the flaming sword. Their culture, with the definite article present in both of these phrases, the cherubim and the flaming sword, these are images that their culture already were familiar with. And so when he said he placed the cherubim, everybody went, oh crap. And when he said he placed the flaming sword, they were like, we know what that is. We know what that is. Do we know what that is? Not a daggone clue, right? Not a clue, right? But, I mean, we can discover. But the point is, we read that and we go, what are we talking about? Which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. One of the things that we do with this kind of stuff is we go, oh, so all we have to do is find the location of the garden. That's all we have to do. But it's not the point, guys. The point is, the access to life 
which the scripture repeatedly considers Jesus, the access to life was gone. And the access to life will not be restored until he hits the cross, until the atonement is complete, okay? So that's what happens. Now, let's roll into chapter 4 briefly. Briefly. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said... I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Sounds very Lord of the Rings-esque, right? I have created a man-child. Anyway, okay, verse 2. She didn't talk with that low voice. Anyway, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Okay, you see the distinction in their jobs. Uh, Verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Now look at the contrast here. This is a very important contrast. Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the, say that with me, firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. What is the problem with Cain's offering? It's not that it's grain. It wasn't first. It's distinctly identified as just an offering. And then Cain's is highlighted as of the firstlings, or Abel is. Abel is honoring God. Here's another thing to consider. Where are the worship rules coming from? Where are they coming from? Is this Moses reading what he has been given back into the text? Or were they given some sort of code beforehand? Well, it's a challenge because later in the New Testament, it's going to say that where there is no law, sin is not held to account. So Cain is held to account in this situation. There must be sin, which means there must be some law that was given. Okay, Just things to consider. Fascinating ideas. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Now look at this series of questions and tell me what it sounds like. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fell? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Sounds exactly like God with Adam in the garden. He's going, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Cain has the ability to correct this, right? Adam sailed. That ship sailed. Cain has the opportunity to correct this, though. And if you do well, uh, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You know what Romans 3 says? says that no one seeks after God, no one is right, no one is good, and what has that concluded people in the church to, uh, what has that made people in the church conclude? It means that man cannot do good. We are one chapter further than the fall, and man has the choice to not do stupid. Do you notice this? God is gracious, and he's constantly gracious with his people, with his creation, and he gives him the choice. The issue lies in you. The issue lies in you. And so you can say, oh, okay, Lord, I will stop being angry. I will love my brother. What does Jesus say about murder later in the New Testament? Where does it start? 
starts in your heart because of what? Because you're angry towards your brother, right? Well, look at what flows here. Cain told Abel uh, his brother, right? Cain told Abel his brother, this, I guess, this story. Uh, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. What did Cain not do? Cain didn't listen to God, right? He didn't listen. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother and why? Uh, and, and he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What does division from God also lead to? A bunch of lying and a bunch of nonsense and excuse making. We saw it with Adam and Eve. We're seeing it again with Cain. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I hear this from my daughters too, right? Verse 10, and he said, what have you done? You know what he's done, right? Uh, so what, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. But you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face, same thing, driven out of the garden, right? From your face, I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer in the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. That also sounds like the melodrama of my daughters. Verse 15, so the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. We see this separation occurring repeatedly, right? This separation that happens because of disorder is just brutal. I... I, I just don't even know what to say about how far and how distant we are from God. This effect still is true for us today. We feel distant from God. How many of you would say you feel distant from God? Even as Christians, how many of you would say it? You feel distant. This is just simply residue of the fall. Is God distant from you? The answer is no, he's not distant from you. What has to happen is we have to call on the name of the Lord. Later in chapter 4, it says, Adam had relations with his wife, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For he said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. What a meaning for a name, right? To Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So all of these fascinating things that occur inside of Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, all of these things require us to get into a different worldview and start asking hard questions. And here's what you need to do when you're asking those hard questions. You need to be okay with not landing on an answer. That, like, bothers my personality, okay? It bothers my personality. I want to know the facts. I want to know how to solve the riddle. I want to get to the end of the thing, right? But we have to be okay with not understanding the answer. And in not being okay, we can open our minds to different interpretations and different ideas, and we can weigh them. doesn't mean we're led astray by them, but we can actually weigh them, okay?
So what we're going to talk about next week is after this division occurs, we're going to talk about some of the archetypes that are, that are present for Adam and Eve, what they represent, as well as being literal beings. We're going to talk about... Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus being the second Adam and what, what that concept is all about. Um, we're also going to talk about how this reversal of headship in the garden when Adam kind of rejects God and goes with whatever the serpent says, this rejection of headship, what Adam seems to have done here, and this is just fun for you to, to process, what Adam seems to have done here was the same thing that Esau did with Jacob. In the presence of a deceiver, Esau sells his birthright. And Adam seems to sell his birthright here. And consequently, in selling that birthright, there is chaos that ensues, right? So we're going to look at those metaphors, we're going to look at those ideas, and we're going to try to come to a more solid understanding the best we can with these ideas. I want you to walk away with this. God created the world in order, We made the world in disorder. And the two most apparent disordered processes in this were the disorder of man and woman and the disorder of us and God. Those relationships are strained. And here is my point. Every time you experience a strain in those relationships, that's a product of the fall. That's a a residue of us dropping God, okay? When we talk and say things like, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world, right? This is all part of this, guys. This is all part of this. Your battle, husbands, is not against your wife. And wife, your battle is not against your husbands. Church, your battle is not against God. He loves you. God's battle is not against you, actually. He's battling something far greater and far more sinister, and he is redeeming you. So all of this stuff, all of this stuff is fascinating. God created the world for order. We we created disorder. And the disorder that is most evident is our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Okay? Makes all the sense in the world of Jesus coming back and saying, love God and love people, doesn't it? It's going to make more sense as we go through this. I'm intentionally leaving you with uh, unanswered questions so that you can feel the way I feel every week. Anyway, does that sound fun? Okay, but if you do have questions, if you do have questions, I encourage you to send those questions to me. This week has been a, a week filled with questions, and, uh, it, and it's fascinating. So, and, and some of those questions are um, easy, and some of those questions are, are deeply challenging questions. So we're going to go ahead and take communion and, um, and remember what Christ has done for us, and Dylan's going to lead, lead us in that. Um, just remember, church, just remember what Jesus came to do was to reset this disorder. What he came to do was to reset these broken relationships. Just keep that in your mind as you go through this week.